Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Conferences for Women. On March 14th, tens of thousands will come together in one digital space for a national gathering of women supporting women. Register now and gain access to experts on career advancement, leadership, and personal development. maconferenceforwomen.org slash national dash conference. Jessica is an OBGYN at a Pennsylvania hospital. For her, being a doctor is a higher calling. But she says it's getting harder and harder to live up to that calling as her employer turns her hospital into a lean for-profit corporation. Our patients expect us to be and we want to be compassionate caregivers who think of them and their disease and what we can do to help and nothing else. The reality is we're partly that and partly data entry workers and partly complicit in a medical system that is focused on profit rather than the patient. Not just frustrated or dismayed, but partly complicit. Jessica feels like she herself is a guilty party as the quality of care goes down. That's taking a toll on her sense of worth, her moral compass, on the Hippocratic Oath she took when she became a doctor. And that toll, that sense of helplessness, has a name. Moral injury. What comes with it that's more moral injury is, am I being honest with myself and my patients when I say, what we're doing is safe, it's good enough. I'm giving patients the care they need. I'm taking care of patients the way I would want to take care of my family and my loved ones. Would I send someone to the place that I'm taking care of them? Do I have the resources to do this job well? And if I don't, what can I do about that? And it's horrifying to realize the answer is maybe nothing. To be clear, Jessica isn't talking about burnout, but moral injury, something akin to what soldiers describe after doing or witnessing things in combat that they can't live with. Dr. Jessica says many of her colleagues are throwing their hands up and quitting the profession. Each of us has our breaking point. Fortunately, I think mine's still well in the future. I I love what I do, but I've watched several of my colleagues decide that X or Y was their breaking point, whether it was this new electronic health record, whether it was any of the given decisions that hospital administration has made that affected the point of care in a negative way for the sake of increasing profitability. Pretty much each time a major change like that gets made, you'll see someone decide that was the hit they couldn't take, that was the bridge they weren't willing to cross, and we lose another. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And that was Jessica, an OBGYN in Pennsylvania. We're not using her full name because she fears retaliation by the hospital system she works for. 
Now, this concept of moral injury in medicine is reverberating so profoundly with healthcare professionals that we received a record number of calls and testimonials from people when we said we'd be doing today's show. We'll hear more from some of those folks later in the hour. The causes, costs, and consequences of moral injury in healthcare is captured in the new book, If I Betray These Words. Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. It's by Dr. Wendy Dean. She's a former emergency room doctor and a psychiatrist and is currently president and co-founder of the nonprofit The Moral Injury of Healthcare. Dr. Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you today. So moral injury, in as we commonly understand it, with soldiers is defined as uh, a situation in which a person feels a betrayal by a legitimate authority in a very high-stakes situation. When did you first see those conditions being applied, uh, that you could apply those conditions in healthcare? So honestly, I've seen these, I've felt these from the time that I entered into medicine, but really over the past decade or so, it seems to have intensified. And I think the only reason that I could see that so clearly was because I was no longer practicing. So I had a bit of of ability to step away and to take a broader view. And so I could watch my, my colleagues across the country who were struggling and said, like Jessica, I still love my patients. I love the medicine I practice, but it's everything else that's getting in the way that's really grinding me down. So it's interesting that you, so this has probably been going on even prior to the past 10 years, but you weren't able to see it while you were um, actively practicing every day? I think it's really hard to go into work every day and, and have these questions and still be able to take care of patients and feel like you're doing a good job. As Jessica said, am I complicit? And when you have those questions, doing that work becomes harder. But I do think that it's been there for a long time. So, but this, so, so complicit in what exactly? What, what is, um, what are the things that people are experiencing in healthcare settings that might be causing this moral injury? Every time that we're asked to attend to something that is not our patient's best interest. So, for example, when we have to turn away we have to turn our backs in order to fill in the, the electronic medical record. That feels like a small turning away from our patients, taking care of our organization instead of taking care of them. When we have to spend an hour getting a prior authorization for care that we know they deserve, that feels like we're turning towards the business of medicine and taking care of it rather than taking care of our patients. It's not any one big egregious thing. It's many, many smaller cuts, shall we say. Death by a thousand cuts, not one massive um, injury. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned earlier that this isn't necessarily burnout that we're talking about or not even PTSD. So how does moral injury differ from those two things in healthcare? Well, the way we think about it is that 
it's not either or. It may be both and. So it's possible to suffer from both moral injury and burnout. But in, with burnout, it's a demand resource mismatch. Most, most healthcare professionals knew what they were signing up for. They knew they were going to work long hours. They knew they were going to see impossibly hard things. What they didn't know was how hard it was going to be to take care of their patients. And so when we, when we put these two side by side, burnout tends to be the administrative burden, the, as Jessica was describing it, the clerical overload that we have, those box-checking exercises, the, um, the understaffing. But moral injury is the relational piece of this on the side where we've spoken up again and again and said, we don't think this is safe for patients or we don't think that this is aligning with the mission of our hospital as we read it. Can we please change it? And it's either dismissed or it's not acted upon. That feels that's where the betrayal comes in. I see. And and this idea of a moral injury implies that there's some kind of, how do I put it, a transgression of deeply held beliefs, expectations, or, or values, right? So is this a situation in which um, healthcare workers are telling you that they're actually participating in a system where they feel like the things that they're being asked to do are are wrong to the point that it's hard to live with those actions again i don't i don't think any of these are are massively egregious there's not one incident that you can that you can point to but when these incidents accumulate over time day after day week after week i go in and i have to take care of my organization in preference to my patient, that becomes wearing, a wearing down. And those transgressions of deeply held moral beliefs are the oaths that we took to put our patients first. And so we promised when we came into these professions that we would always put our patients first. That's what we were educated to do and trained to do. And when we have to go to work every day and potentially compromise that oath, that's where the moral injury comes in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you first associated moral injury and clinical practice in um, an article that appeared in STAT. Dr. Dean, can you tell me about the reaction you got from that? It was completely unexpected. We, Simon Talbot and I um, wrote the article as a way to explain what we were thinking about this other part of distress in healthcare that nobody was talking about, this, this sense of betraying our oaths. And we wrote it, and it was overwhelming. We had, we had people calling us at all hours saying, thank you for the language that I have been looking for for 30 years. The article was downloaded 300,000 times. It was published in 2018 and was the most read article in 2019 for Stat News. It was not at all what we expected. And what it said to us was that people were hungry for new language to, expre to express their experience. Hmm. Um, people were trying to seek language for what they were experiencing for the past 
30 years. So this has been going on for a long time. Is, is it uniquely American, though? It isn't. We have heard from clinicians in the UK, in Australia, New Zealand, Germany. It's across the world. Well, today we're speaking with Dr. Wendy Dean. She has she has a new book out. It's called If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. We've got an excerpt of it at our website, onpointradio.org. And when we come back, we're going to hear from some of the many people who contacted us. We also got an overwhelming response, Dr. Dean. Uh, we'll hear from them in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We received an avalanche of calls and messages when we announced we'd be doing today's show on moral injury in medicine. They came from across the country, including Ohio, Wisconsin, Washington, Massachusetts, Florida, New Jersey, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Oregon, Michigan, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Maine, and others. And the calls came from nurses. Here are just a few of the many stories they shared. My name is Sarah, and I'm a nurse. To be fully staffed, on our unit we needed 14 nurses, and regularly, at least once a week, we would work with seven nurses. Some of the places where like moral injury would come in just on a daily, daily basis is not being able to address people's most basic dignity needs. Every single day, I would go home and I'd lie awake thinking about the care I left undone and the ways I let my patients down. Um, you know, another shift, I went in at the same time as one of the doctors first thing in the morning, just checking in on all my patients. I saw my patient was soiled. He'd been having a lot of diarrhea. And then between the urgent medical needs of all my other patients, it was three hours before I got back in there. So that same doctor happened to come back in while I was cleaning the patient. And he was like, oh, he had another bowel movement. And I can still feel the shame that I felt having to tell that doctor, no, this is the same one from three hours ago. 
I'm just now having a chance to clean him. My name is Marilyn. I'm an active registered nurse in the state of Connecticut for over 25 years. Boy, the business side of medicine slapped us hard upside the face when we became a for-profit hospital. We were immediately directed to call the patients, clients, and customers. And we were given the directive that the linens could only be changed every third day unless overtly, visibly soiled. That's only the beginning of what for-profit business-like hospitals have become. Hey, I am a pediatric ICU nurse, and I recently cared for a child who was under age two, very medically complex, had been hospitalized their whole life, um, and was just such a sweetie. And when we no longer had curative measures, the family made the choice the loving choice to withdraw care and allow their child to be comfortable and held and loved as they passed. Within a few hours of this patient passing, we were all expected to move on. We were all expected that the room become full, bottle our grief and self-care our way through healing. Um, to me, this is business and medicine. Now, there are always kids who need our help, and I am so happy to take care of them. I'm so happy to help them. But sometimes we need a moment to process our grief, and business doesn't allow for that. doesn't allow for that at all. I worked at a rural hospital in a very small town in Michigan. It's called our special care unit. Um, recently, our hospital made the decision to close the SCU and merge it with MedSurge um, to save money to make one cost center instead of two. Um, instead of bidding into one of the MedSurge positions, I took the layoff and moved into a new career. It kills me to leave my patients behind, but knowing the level of care that we used to provide and knowing where they're heading, I couldn't be a part of it. Um, I found my 10-year service award and it said, thank you for helping us thrive in the service of humanity. Um, my 15-year service award, which I received in December of 2022, said, thank you for helping us provide cost-effective health care as if that has ever been why anybody went into nursing in the first place. Those are just a few of the many stories that nurses in particular shared with us when they heard we were doing a show on the moral injury in healthcare practice today. Dr. Wendy Dean, they all talked about cost-cutting um, in healthcare, uh, impacting nursing in particular. In your book, though, you talk about the corporatization of healthcare more broadly. Can you tell me more about that? The costs of healthcare and, and becoming efficient are part of what drives this. But the other challenge for clinicians as a whole is that the corporatization of care has led to a shift in where decisions are made. Rather than being made by clinicians who work at the bedside, whether they're nurses or doctors, they're being shifted into management, upper management, or into the C-suite. 
And it is not infrequent that the folks who are at those levels may not, may not ever have been a clinician. And so trying to make decisions for those on the front lines um, becomes harder. And it may, it may be um, less closely connected to what will work for them. But so I, I, what I guess I'm trying to um, figure out is uh, this is I, I would say this is something that's happening in a lot of places. But is the is the unique factor that then causes the the moral injury in people here is that they're actually um, you know they're they're dealing with patients, they're dealing with human beings, and at the end of the day, it's that practice of giving care. Um, I mean, the, the actual practice that's changing. It is. It's. It's the, the actual practice is changing their ability to provide the standard of care that they expect of themselves, that they expect of healthcare as a whole, is being, is being constrained by the amount of staffing they have, by the supply chains that, that may restrict how, many, how much supplies they have, as, as you heard, bed, changing bed linens only every three days. Um, all of those things are impacting clinicians' ability to take the best care of patients. Mm-hmm. So it's a business decision how often you change linens or what kind of linens you have or the quality of mattress that you have your patients on. It's not a nursing decision. It's not a, it's not a physician's decision. Mm. But, I, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, because in the United States, well, anywhere in the world, healthcare costs, right? It's not just, there's no magical money tree that just pays for it. So, um, did, I mean, I completely hear what you're saying that, it, that it's not, decisions aren't necessarily being made strictly through clinical eyes, but the cost has to be tallied up somewhere uh, and somehow. So, how could it ultimately be anything other than a business decision? I think what clinicians are objecting to is that they don't have a voice. So it's not, it's not that, that executives are asking clinicians, how can we get to this, to this bottom line that we need to reach? How can we do that together? Minimizing cost, maximizing care. How do you think that we can do this? Clinicians know where there's, they also know that there's waste in care. And if you ask us, we can probably tell you where to shave some, some cost. But choosing to do that without our input ultimately can come around to reducing patient, the, the quality of patient care. Right. So, so here's where it's, it's not just sort of the, uh, the accounting here. Uh, of the the money that's at issue in terms of causing the moral injuries that you, that you describe and that we've heard from so many people, but you talk about how corporate culture itself, like, is um, is seeping into actual practice. And I think one of the the sharpest examples of that came from one of the nurses that we just heard from, who said that when her hospital um, became for profit. They were literally told to call people, not patients any longer, but customers. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that before? We've heard it a lot. And there is 
absolutely something to making sure that our patients are are experiencing healthcare in a way that feels as if they're cared for. But but to shift it to the point where we say um, that they are customers produ- who are purchasing a product, that feels very dehumanizing. And it, it feels dehumanizing as a patient. It feels dehumanizing as a clinician. It's hard to care for customers the way we care for our patients. And it also takes away that underlying sense of vulnerability that a patient has and that requires a certain amount of awareness and, and um, you know, we ha- if patients are vulnerable, we have to take extra steps and be extra careful about how we handle them. When they're a customer, we assume that they can sort of advocate for themselves and take care of themselves. So I think that takes mm-hmm. away a certain quality of that relationship when we shift to a customer focus. Well, yeah, I mean, and you just even the concept of seeing um, a, a patient as a customer, it turns the relationship into a business transaction, right? It becomes, enti- I mean, Absolutely. the the, e- the ethos is transactional rather than care-based. And and I think it's, it's hard to imagine how that doesn't sort of cause a, a moral injury right. to someone who, got, went, who came into the profession thinking, I'm going to take care of people, not that like we're handing money across the till for a service that I'm providing. You know, but, but you also write in the book uh, about how, oh gosh, the, the structure, the economic structure of healthcare in this country is reflected in um, how hospitals, for example, are staffed, that there's, you know, if we can put a big number on it, that there's 16 staff per patient. But how many of those are actually clinicians or medical professionals versus administrators? So for every physician in the healthcare system, there are 16 others in healthcare that are supporting the delivery of care. Six of those touch patients. So 10 of them are in the background doing the administrative work of healthcare. And that's everyone from the schedulers to the receptionists to environmental services to the executives. Now, while that seems to be a disturbing ratio there, maybe not, uh, it's lopsided in the wrong way. Also, I mean, Dr. Dean, you know as well as anyone, like just the the administration of modern healthcare in this country is enormously complex. I mean, we have moved into a world where we need the specialized uh, knowledge and skill set of people who know how to deal with medical records or who know how to deal with scheduling software. I mean, is it the way it is because it has to be? It has been, at least in part, in relation to increasing regulation and legislation that controls healthcare and the increased complexity of reimbursement. But there are also some arguments that it might be worth considering whether we can streamline some of that management. For example, when we looked at what happened during COVID, when we when the regulations were relaxed, care was streamlined. Clinicians felt like they could again pay attention to their patients more than they pay attention to their documentation and their billing practices. It was, a, it was an eye-opening experience for many of the clinicians I talked to when they said, I don't have to write a two-page note 
I can write a note that conveys my care without justifying billing to the same extent that I did before the pandemic. And it made a world of difference for them. I'm going to come back to this uh, in a couple of minutes, but Dr. Dean, again, refocusing for a moment on the this core issue of moral injury in the healthcare practitioners um, of this country. You know, one of the things that we hear about in the, when soldiers uh, in war experience moral injury is that the injury can be so grave that they honestly can't live with what they've seen or, or what they've done. Um, and, uh, you know, we, as we know, rates of suicide amongst veterans are, are very high. I mean, you tell a story, at least one story in the book, about the cost to clinicians' uh, emotional health. Um, can you tell us a story about Jacob, uh, excuse me, Dr. Jacob uh, Neufeld? Sure. Dr. Neufeld was a pedi- pediatric rehabilitation physician who felt he was being asked to care for patients in ways that weren't good for him. He was on call every night and weren't good for his patients. And he he spoke out about it. And in the end, um, he didn't win, and he ended up taking his own life. Um, Physicians are twice as likely as the general population to die by suicide. Nurses are 1.2 times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. This is a this is a career that takes a toll. And of course, suicides are are multifactorial. So we can't blame it on one thing. But when you made a promise, and that you can't keep, that feels like it's co- a core part of who you are, it can be very disorienting to have to give it up. I'm, I'm looking for a way to understand where to begin to sort of uh, poke the system to provide some the beginnings of change. I mean, where where would you look? I like to look local because local is what we can control. So asking folks in their local institution to talk with their executives, to talk with their managers, there's become there's become this imaginary divide between administrators and healthcare and clinicians. And it's really hard for either side to reach across because there are lots of assumptions made. There are lots of um, preconceived ideas. And if we can start to be curious about the other, that's the first best place to start. Mm. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk with you more, Dr. Dean, about um, more specifics on some solutions to this moral injury problem in healthcare. Dr. Dean's new book is If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. We'll be back in a minute. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Before we continue, I just want to give you a little heads up about something we're working on for Thursday. We're going to talk about student behavior and discipline in schools. So if you're an educator, we want to hear from you. Have you seen an increase in challenging classroom behaviors? How do you handle it? How are you allowed to handle it? Or have you gotten pushback from parents or administrators about discipline? Um, Or do you get support when you need help handling a disruptive student? And parents, we want to hear from you as well. Um, Do you see an increase in disruptive behavior in your child's classroom? So tell us your story in the On Point Vox Pop app. You can download that wherever you get your apps. Again, just look for On Point Vox Pop You can also leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. Well, today we're talking with Dr. Wendy Dean. Her new book is If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. Now, there's one more story we want to hear from a current physician, and she's deeply concerned about what moral injury is going to cost American healthcare in the future. This is Dr. Jamie Woolridge, a pediatric pulmonologist. I've always had a love for kids. I knew from the moment I was went into medicine, I would take care of kids. And I take care of kids with chronic illnesses, specifically cystic fibrosis, asthma, lung disease related to being born premature. So at my previous institution, I'm taking care of asthma patients. And I find out that the hospital has decided for financial reasons to cut the social worker that works in the clinic with me, the respiratory therapists that work in the clinic with me, and the dietitian. I have these staff coming into my office crying, trying to figure out why their 20 years of dedication to patient care has just been ended by an HR director who has said, you're done. I go to leadership and I try to advocate to get these positions happening again, and I end up getting retaliated against myself. I had salaries stripped of me. I was taken out of leadership positions without cause because I was fighting for patients. And my male colleagues didn't get in trouble. And the stress of this left me feeling so trapped and scared that I ended up having like actual physical manifestations. I started getting headaches. I started not being able to sleep. I started having GI symptoms. I started having blood pressure. I'd never had high blood pressure in my life. It completely interrupted my ability to take care of patients. 
like, I, I, I could not deliver the care that my patients needed. And so I would walk out of there knowing I was shortchanging them, knowing what they needed, but I couldn't provide it. So in the world of pediatric pulmonology, something that actually raises some money is doing a procedure called a flexible bronchoscopy. I've had bean counters say to me, well, can't you do more of those? And I'm like, what, do you want me to like go out on the street and put a big sign, you know, come get your flexible bronchoscopy right here? Let me make the decision of what tests need to be done or not done. Let me make the decision. I've had bean counters say to me, you need to see more patients. You need to see them more frequently. They want my clinics full. They want my clinics absolutely full. We're always going to put patients first. And I think it's just going to continue that we're going to quietly suffer. But there's just going to be this attrition. Like, if I could leave, have I thought about leaving the profession? Yes, I have. And it's hard to believe that. I think back to the day I was so excited when I found out I'd been accepted to medical school and I was going to achieve these dreams and I was going to make a difference and I was going to help people. And now to think that I want to leave that. I have a 15-year-old daughter. She's amazing. She's starting to show an interest in medicine and I cringe. I'm not real sure I want her to follow in my footsteps. She's the kind of doctor that we want to have. She's compassionate. She's intelligent. And I'm going to get caught at some point in time when she says, Mom, I want to go to medical school. And do I encourage her to do that? That was pediatric pulmonologist Dr. Jamie Woolridge. Dr. Dean, do you see some potential long-term consequences in um, people wanting to go into healthcare as they hear their family members or friends experiencing what you've been describing? I worry that we are going to start seeing a decrease in our best and brightest wanting to go into medicine. Right now, we still have a lingering effect from the pandemic, which was paradoxical, paradoxical in that People saw the heroism, the quote-unquote heroism of, of clinicians, and they, they wanted to join that. And so the applications to medical school haven't suffered. But I do worry that as more physicians and nurses walk away and tell their stories after they've left, that we will see an impact on mm. who wants to go into medicine. Mm. Well, I'd love you to tell me a little bit more. Uh, tell me a, a particular story about how this kind of this kind of system e emerges. Um, and and you be actually, you begin the book with uh, with a good example um, of the the story of the Health Management Association. It's the fourth largest hospital corporation in the United States, and you and you tell a story about uh, decisions made by board chair William uh, Schoen, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Can you can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, William Schoen started his career as a in the glass industry, Libby, like Libby Glass. He moved to brewing, 
And when he was a CEO at Schaefer Brewing, he ended up taking a 150-year-old family business and eventually selling it off for parts. He made a, a good income off of that. And a couple of years later, he was asked to join Health Management Associates. And when he did that, he admitted, I don't know anything about healthcare, but I do know Monopoly is good. And so he would go and buy up hospitals that were, that were in rural areas that had no competition. And then he could ask clinicians to meet certain admission statistics. For example, they might want 50% of Medicare patients to be admitted from the emergency room into the hospital to make sure that the bed stayed full or to do long panels of laboratory tests because that would make revenue for the hospital. And in those areas, the clinicians had nowhere to go if they didn't want if they did, if they didn't want to work at HM, an HMA hospital, they would have to uproot their family and move away because there was not another hospital in the area. And patients also had no opportunity to go elsewhere. And so, by using the concepts that he that he learned in brewing, he created some very profitable hospitals but they weren't necessarily good for their patients. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I, Dr. Dean, I want to offer you a contrary point of view, if I may, right? Because, of course, the United States is virtually unique in the size of its for-profit healthcare system. I mean, uh, I should strike the virtually and say, we're unique in the size of our <laughs> for-profit healthcare system. Um, and so you're, you have these persuasive arguments about the the. The, the causes of moral injury, we can, uh, we can point them back to the corporatization of healthcare in this country. But at the same time, there are things, you know, you talk about um, uh, electronic medical records in the book quite a bit. I would argue that, well, we kind we, you're not saying we don't need them, but I'm going to say that, like, we just haven't developed exactly the kind of EMR that we need, uh, but we don't necessarily want to go back to an era of having, you know, six inch thick files of papers on patients, right? Absolutely. And then, and then in addition, um, you know, when you mentioned that you were, received a huge response from the UK, that got me thinking that, well, uh, there, there's at least a, a mostly nationalized healthcare system. It's, you know, the NHS is not for profit. It has its own economic strains, but the profit motive isn't one of them. So I wonder if there's an entirely different set of things going on in healthcare overall, um, at least in, in uh, developed Western countries. Is it that people just have a really high expectation of the care that can be delivered? Is it that we have lots more chronic diseases that need a higher level of care that maybe we just don't have systems built for that? Is it other things than just, you know, corporations are bad? So what's interesting is that healthcare in the UK and in our nonprofit healthcare system in the US are often run in the same way that non that for-profit healthcare systems are run. They are for all intents and purposes have the same playbook of of how the business side is run, but in for-profit it's a, it, it's driving towards profit. In the nonprofit side, it's driving towards revenue generation. Um, and so, in the, for example, in the UK, there are the same challenges with understaffing, with um, not being able to see patients 
as as they would like, not being able to get the care. It is it is certainly, and and I would go back to your question about the electronic medical record, we don't want to go back to paper charts. Nobody is saying that. But what we would like to go to is an intuitive user interface, something that is actually built around a clinical encounter rather than around healthcare billing. Do you have more? But I, I because because oh. well, no, no. The reason why I'm asking yeah. is because okay, when in nonprofit uh, circumstances, when uh, uh, the models are built around revenue, ideally that revenue is supposed to be plowed back into the the care that's being given. Correct, correct. And um, what you'll see in a lot of nonprofit healthcare systems is that it is plowed back into um, capital infrastructure, building infrastructure. And it may also be plowed into executive salaries in the millions of dollars. And so there are, there are ways that we need to start looking not just at whether something is for-profit or non-profit, but in how it's managed and start questioning what do we want from our healthcare system and getting back to what are the patient values what are the clinician values, and can we align our healthcare systems to meet those? Mm-hmm. Well, so we've got a few minutes left to talk about some specific examples that you have on the kind of realignment that you're talking about, because you know, there are many practitioners who are just exiting the system. Not they're not quitting healthcare, but they're exiting the system and setting up. Um, I don't know, boutique concierge. They're, they're just their own practices um, that allow them to operate differently. I mean, you tell the story of an oncologist. It's a pseudonym, though, Dr. Rita Gallardo. Can you tell me a little bit about her story? Sure. So Rita was, um, Dr. Gallardo was an oncologist who works in the Midwest, and she quit two jobs in the matter of two years when she realized that her values were not aligned with her healthcare system. She couldn't refer patients where she wanted to, and they were not happy with the efficiency of her electronic medical record documentation. So she went and set up her own direct primary care practice where her patients would come, they come to her, and they pay, in effect, a subscription service. So $50 every month, and they have unlimited access to her. She can decide how often she sees them, how long she sees them. She contracts with local imaging centers to get greatly reduced rates on MRIs or CT scans. Her lab tests are significantly less expensive for her patients, as are many medications that she can get more cheaply than they can get through a big chain pharmacy. Mm-hmm. She's returning She's returning to healthcare practice that is just between the doctor and the patient without any intervening middlemen. Hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's an inspiring example. I think the challenge is, is that's a tough one to scale, right? Uh, uh, given the overwhelming need for healthcare uh, across this entire country. Uh, we've got just a couple of minutes, Dr. Dean. You, you do talk about some specific action that you'd like to see being taken at the policy level, right? Um, you talked about, uh, in the book, you talk about Congress, maybe Congress should step in and and put limits on how much ho- uh, hospital systems consolidate 
or vertically integrate. Um, you also talk about making agencies reduce documentation requirements and some insurance reform. I mean, are any of these options uh, viable or even on the horizon? So there are places that are that are taking some of those actions. And for example, the FTC has already started taking action on healthcare system consolidation. They're looking at it not just from the patient perspective and whether or not it will be cheaper for them to receive care in the system, but also looking at it from a workforce perspective. What will be the impact on the workers in the area? So for example, in Albany, New York, many of the emergency rooms there are contracted with one single medical group, one for-profit emergency physician group. An emergency physician who is unhappy there can't move without literally moving themselves and their family because there's a, there is a monopoly on emergency care there. So breaking that monopoly, breaking the um, non-compete clauses that keep physicians from moving across town, they have to move across the county or across the state, there are a lot of options that we can take, but we have to be willing to make those changes. And Dr. Dean, it also sounds like you're asking more and more healthcare workers to, to speak out if they can. And let me tell you, we heard from so many of them um, as word spread that we were doing this show today. So Dr. Wendy Dean, I can't thank you enough. The new book is If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. We've got an excerpt of it at our website, onpointradio.org. Dr. Dean, thanks again. Thank you so much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.